0: is Michael Naftali AM, respected company director and businessman whose 45 years of experience in both board and executive positions, extends across a roll call of some of the nation's most successful institutions. Michael, pleasure having you on our program, thanks for your time and for the opportunity. We'll get into your array of career experiences shortly and there's, there's been many but firstly I want to uh, get an understanding as to your background, walk me through sort of your background in Melbourne and, and your upbringing in Melbourne.
1: Thanks, Rob. Uh, unlike many people I know, my I was born here. My parents were born here. Three of my four grandparents were born here. Uh, the other one was born in New Zealand, as was his mother. Indeed, uh, obviously a Jewish background. Uh, still actively Jewish. I was fortunate. I think. Uh, no, nothing to do with me, but I happened to be born into the right time, the right time, the right place, with the right family. Uh, my father was absolutely devoted to family uh, my mother who at 98 is fading but still alive but she's still probably the most positive person I have ever met people took about glass half full for my mother there could be nothing in the glass and she'd still see it as running over and even now when she's you know really not great how are you, mum I'm great why wouldn't I be I get three meals a day it's marvelous in here uh, it's Probably the greatest gift, the greatest bequest my sister and I could have possibly had. So grew up in Melbourne, not poor but not particularly affluent. Uh, I was fortunate to win a scholarship to Scotch College and I think uh, reflecting on the question uh, that was quite a formative experience because whilst by no means were we poor or destitute at all, relative to many of the people there, we, were, we had less. And I think that probably set up some ambitions uh, when I think about it. So that was the background. Dad was an accountant uh, in business, Uh, didn't ever really have any great aspirations to do anything other than a childhood flirtation with perhaps I could change the world and be Prime Minister, but I grew out of that, And, uh, and so it evolved.
0: As I understand it, you then studied a Bachelor of Economics from Monash University, graduating in 1969. Take me through the, the origins of why you wanted to study business and economics.
1: Nothing more, I think, Rob, than I just said. That's the family background. Interestingly, if we have a, a profession in the family, it's pawnbroking, uh, which is P-A-W-N, let me say. <laughs> uh and so i guess it's that finance background that's what we talked about i uh, flirtations with perhaps being a lawyer um, but economics business was what i was always interested in even i think before i knew it but that was the interest so that's what i did
0: following graduation you then enrolled in an mba from the university of chicago during the period 1970 to 1972 what was Living and, and studying in the US like during that time? Uh,
1: it was an interesting time because it was the, the, the end of the Nixon era. Uh, Med Daly in Chicago was renowned for corruption. Uh, you saw a divided society. Blacks lived here, whites lived there. It was uh, the riots in Chicago. In fact, the school, the, the business, the whole university closed down. Uh, at the time of the primaries, because two years earlier there were the riots in, in Grant Park. So we sort of a very divided side, but certainly very positive, and a huge amount of uh, focus on, on presentation and marketing. If I think back, hard to believe, 50 years, Australians didn't market themselves, I'm not sure, we might come to this later, but I don't think Australia particularly in many ways markets itself well today. Americans are all about marketing. You know, some say that's just gloss and spin, and yes, there's some. But it was really learning to present the positive, state your case, be clear. Uh, and that, that was one of the great lessons. And the rigor. University of Chicago is a very rigorous uh, place. Uh, I still continue to do quite a lot of economics there. And uh, so I, th- I think the division in the society, the marketing, and the rigor would probably be the three things I took away.
0: So you complete your MBA and return to Australia in the early part of the 1970s. Where did you see your professional career going and perhaps what were some of the early roles?
1: Well, the answer, interestingly, is I had no idea. I really didn't know what I wanted to do and I'd spent the previous six or seven years of my life mainly at universities. I had worked at Ford uh, in Broadmeadows uh, before I left, uh, between Monash and the University of Chicago. Uh, they offered me my old job back, and of course I was an American MBA. I was way beyond that. That was so inappropriate, I was insulted. And not only that, it wasn't as much as the university paid me to lecture. And it's a bit of prestige having an MBA from the University of Chicago. The Monash, what was called the m program, was just getting off the ground. Uh, so I went there because that was the world I knew. I didn't enjoy it very much. Uh, I'm not uh, an academic researcher. Uh, and so I started to look for a job and through uh, happenstance, finished up in investment banking, I did lots and lots of interviews and it's something that when people come to talk to me today about what should I do, go and talk to people. You know, there's one of the great sayings, and I learned a lot from Richard Pratt, one of his great sayings, and there are many of them, we'll probably go through a few in this interview, but you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And I had no idea what I didn't know. Uh, And so I finished up in investment banking, along the way met Tony Berg, who was uh, not yet the uh, Managing Director of Hill Samuel, pre the Macquarie Bank, often tell people I'm so old that I was at Macquarie Bank before it was even known as Macquarie Bank, Uh, and spent several years there. Again, a great experience learning, again, the rigour, I've possibly forgotten some in the intervening two or three years. Uh, of the work across a whole range of industries which was also interesting you know primary secondary uh, service industries uh, exposed to a lot of people uh, and that was a great learning experience too.
0: And what were some of the deals or mandates that you're working on in your role at corporate finance at Hill Samuel?
1: So one of the more interesting things in the sugar industry, there are a number of cooperatives that own the sugar mills in northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. We acted for those cooperatives in dealing with CSR. I acted uh, mandates in the oil industry, uh, food food processing and marketing. Uh, Hines, which was interesting because it was the CEO of Hines, uh, Ernest, the late Ernest Barr, who was a wonderful man, who introduced me to Richard Pratt, getting ahead of the story a little. Uh, Sir Ian McLennan, who was the chair of BHP, was also uh, chair of a, a, a malting company. I remember being told when I presented the conclusions I'd reached that I had, not, had, had added nothing to the sum of human knowledge, which is by way of saying you disagreed with me. Uh, to this day, I think I was right, but nonetheless, when you're the chairman of BHP it's mm-hmm. in, uh, in your versus a 25-year-old, uh, whatever I was, uh, analyst, you, you know who's right, don't you? Uh, so it was just a, a whole range of people and personalities.
0: Uh, and if I recall correctly, you were headhunted by Richard Pratt to join Visi Industries in 1978 and were initially hesitant to join the business, taking some months to agree to join. What was the, the cause, if you can recall, of, of this hesitancy?
1: Two two reasons, I think. I'm not sure how you know that, which is interesting, but my, my late father could see going from a, an established bank to a s- small ish private company. That didn't seem like a great career move in his view. The other thing probably was that actually getting some formality. Before I resigned from Hill Samuel, I'd I'd like a job offer, but they never offered. The Pratt Group, Vizzy, had never written an offer letter to any employee before. I finished up writing my own and taking over to Richard's place and getting to sign it. So then I had that, then I could resign. (laughs) So it was was just, it was such, it's hard to believe the difference in culture that I went from and to. Uh, So that that took some getting used to. And uh, obviously, eventually it it happened and it was uh, a wonderful career. move.
0: And as I understand it, some of your initial tasks during this period were to develop more formalised financial procedures within within the company. It was operating, by and large, as a family company on very sort of loose structures. How do you go about achieving this, and at what stage was the the business at in its sort of growth journey?
1: By today's standards, it's very small. Turnover is around $10 million, which in the late 70s, early 80s was a reasonable amount. It was profitable. Uh, It was by my standards undergeared, but because the financial reporting was so terrible you couldn't get a, a proper proposal to a bank. Uh, how do you go about it? You know, it's interesting, you learn on the job, it was so alien to everything that I had seen. Uh, there were no clear budgets, uh, no clear budgeting procedure and when I s- tried to put in timetables and said you, you need to have the information in by the whatever date, and the manager said and what if I don't? And I. I didn't have an answer to that. I mean, you just do because at Sam, you, you, you had your budgets in when they were ready when then, then you were questioned about them. So it was slowly, it was carefully, it was bringing in some other people around me who had the relevant experience. Uh, and, and to some extent the important thing, and I say this to people, you've got to demonstrate some success. I mean, for those people uh, who were on the factory floor or out selling, Why did they need someone in head office telling them what to do Uh, and uh, i remember one of the key things that probably was a a, and i think about it i I even underestimated the time although i know it was important was in in uh, collecting receivables Uh, our terms were 30 days into month and they got paid they didn't get paid what did it matter yeah it's plenty of money well there wasn't but um started to measure it Uh, interesting thing is you had, we had four factories at the time, all collected their receivables separately and I just measured them. So you weren't as good as him, why not? Yeah. And there were two or three payers that were recalcitrant. When I say recalcitrant, they just took advantage of the laxity. When I rang the CEOs of those companies because I was able to get on to them, or the, the relevant person said, you know, fair is fair, but you know, they're the terms, you've got the price you want, you got pay, and they're the terms and I had some success. So all of a sudden I did actually contribute something and that helped enormously. So I think it's, you know, the the classic is getting your hands dirty. You have to get your hands dirty and and that's true of anything today. I see it today, you know, and we'll talk later, I guess, about uh, my son's, mainly my son's venture capital fund. It's, the theory is you make the investments and go on and hopefully the founders do well. They need help. you know, not your hands dirty. You can't do it sitting here in this office a- and hope that you know what's going on. Uh, it's, it's the same point. People are still people. Get out there, help them. Everyone's vulnerable. Everyone likes to be asked for help. Everyone like, doesn't want to ask for help but needs it. Just got to deal with the people. I know that's a long, rambling way from what did I do at Visi, but the, the lessons were invaluable.
0: And first impressions of Richard Pratt, what were they like?
1: Larger than life. Uh, I've said to him many, many times, he, he was a flawed genius. I and mean, the genius is obvious, the flaws are, are well known. But he was a genius. He was the only person I've ever met who could look at a blank sheet of paper and have ideas. Uh, and, and driven to succeed, as indeed Anthony is today, different personalities, but that striving for success, focused like you wouldn't believe, despite the gallivanting and uh, big parties Driven to success uh, and, and, and inspirational, truly inspirational. I had lunch a few weeks ago with a fellow I hadn't seen for many years who I'd met at Vizzy and met up as, you know, with the great technological advances through LinkedIn, I think it was. Uh, and we were just telling Richard Pratt's story because he was the, that's the way he was, he was inspirational. And I've often said the only people who didn't like Richard Pratt were the people who'd never met him.
0: And I want to ask you then about the the company so obviously as the economy changes and adapts during the 1980s and 1990s there's periods of significant volatility I I think I read
1: significant volatility is a massive understatement but (laughs)
0: the, the, the business was close I think at one point to even going under in in the year 1990 how did you manage that level of volatility within the business
1: Look, I think it's fair to say there wasn't an entrepreneurial company in the country in the late 80s that wasn't rocky. In fact, I remember uh, Alan Jackson, who would famous for BTR and who we were doing a deal with, and he said, if people think they haven't got a problem at the moment, they're either stupid or liars. <laughs> Everyone had problems. It, it was volatile. It was difficult. Again, focus. I think that, that point about focus and knowing where you're going people often talk about returns Uh, returns and risk obviously go hand in hand a lot of people forget that what I said obviously uh, the risk was enormous so we did although it wasn't obvious at the time dialed back the risk dramatically we cut and cut and cut and sold things even though that wasn't Richard's nature but going back to impressions of Richard not necessarily initially initially he listened I uh, Story, things that get seared into your memory. I remember him coming in one day and saying we had to buy something. And I said, no, we can't afford it. And yes, we can. And, Richard, we just can't. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And he's screamed, you're no use to me. And I'll leave out the, most of the sentence. And uh, there's no point you being here. And I said, I wonder what I do now. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I couldn't concentrate. I didn't know they had a job. <laughs> and you know, no contracts. That that letter that I'd written for myself was so long out of date. Then it didn't matter anymore. And uh, I remember going home. It was about four o'clock by then. Pre-mobile phones. No one was at home. I, I know. Soccer, ballet, swimming. Who knows where the kids were? I was upset anyway. Couldn't. I didn't know. I didn't know what they did on uh, after-school afternoon. I was never home to, to know. So I was getting grumpier and grumpier. <laughs> Now finally, my wife and kids came home I so said, I don't know where I've got a job to go to in the morning. And so I tossed and turned all night, uh, thought, well, i better go in. And I wasn't renowned for going in early. but 7.30, I was at my desk, sort of cleaning it up. Richard walked in, he said, you really don't think we should do that, do you? And I said, that's what I was trying to say. He said, yeah, well, if you feel that strongly about it, we won't and walked out and I went home, went to sleep. <laughs> but that that was the way, he was, you know, pushed and, and he knew enough to listen, not just because it was a whim, but really pushed people and, and excited the argument, got the emotions going and got the best answers that way. And if you you know, I'm going off on tangents is one of my strengths. It's one of the issues today that I think is unfortunate in the world. You don't have that civil discourse in the sense that you don't get people's emotions. If you don't agree with me, well, you're an idiot and you don't deserve to be listened to, it's not right. You've got an opinion, I've got an opinion, I happen to be right, but you might have something that's worth listening to, listen. Uh, it's something the world's lost, at least for the moment.
0: During this period, Anthony Pratt was charged with leading the group's North American expansion. I'll be interested to see how you observe the relationship between Richard and, and Anthony.
1: Uh, rocky, uh, very rocky, exceptionally rocky. Uh, and it was, as I understand it, although I wasn't uh, there at the time, history repeating itself somewhat uh, between Richard and his father. Uh, and while Anthony, as I said before, driven uh, and there really, I think, any, there was not any choice but to go into the business. I mean, that's what the family did. Uh, it evolved some planning, some good luck, uh, that to get that separation, it was better for Anthony to be separated. We had a small presence in the US, we were generating back by then, over the bad times of the late 80s. Uh, generating money so he could expand in the US, and it was uh, possible for Anthony to make his own mark. He, his father rang him several times a day, most days, and if he didn't, Anthony would call him. They'd still argued, but it made it possible for Anthony to make his own way, uh, make his own mistakes, and one of the most valuable things that anyone can do is make mistakes. You know, when you get it right, it's just because you're so smart. It's when you make a mistake you have to think about why, why did that happen, what should I have done differently, what is the lesson for next time. And uh, it was invaluable, uh, as indeed, and you've seen the Pratt succession, each one of the, uh, the Pratt, yeah, you say children, they're, they're 50 and 60 years old, uh, has their own, which means that the, the joint business can prosper because it's not all the ego tied up in one place. And that, that that was the start of that process and it was invaluable and allowed Anthony to develop his own way and his own style and that, that's obviously, history shows how successful that's been.
0: So by the late 80s, I think it was 87 to be exact, you became CEO of the Pratt Group, a role that you held for some 15 years until 2002. What did that role entail and how did the business business expand under your leadership?
1: I'm actually not sure of the time. In Going back to your earlier point about loose private companies, what I was called and what the title changed, I've no idea when and why. If it was in 87, it was probably to do with keeping the banks happy that there was a financial person trying to control things because that was the, the bad times when the crash came. Uh, so I don't think there was any particular magic in that time, perhaps that. The answer to what it meant was I ran the company when Richard wasn't there, but he was always there. And that's the best way I can describe it I mean after the years, so I'd started in late 78 so it was 10 or so years down the track the trust had developed both ways didn't mean we didn't annoy each other, didn't mean we have arguments, uh, I remember going to see Richard one day on a particular deal that I was about to do uh, and I said I was going to commit $25 million and he said so why are you telling me this I said because if I went to do this deal, and I said, came back and said I'd spent 25 million dollars and hadn't asked you. You got upset. He said, Yeah, you're probably right. Well, you've told me now, <laughs> and, and that was the way it was. So we'd reached that stage where, I, the, out and about with the customers, walking through the factory factory floors, was Richard. The overall uh, corporate controls, budgeting, cash management, was me. That doesn't mean I didn't walk through the factory floors. Or he didn't get involved in cash management, of course he did, but it was a it was a perhaps arrogantly, but uh, history would say, a pretty successful partnership.
0: Before we move on, reflecting on your experiences in working so closely with the Pratt family, what what made the business so successful and what were some of the lessons that you took away from your experiences there?
1: Uh, The answer to the two questions is the same. uh, And it refers back, Rob, to what I said before. Totally driven, totally focused. I mean, hardworking, certainly. And managed risks. Uh, Richard really, he didn't invent recycling uh, of paper, but in the early 80s, mid 80s, almost all paper was made from wood chips. From, from, uh, and he, I he, I'm not sure where the expression came from, the urban forest, there was so much waste paper. It's hard to realise today that that waste paper didn't go anywhere, it, it was, went to landfill. The technology was rudimentary, we bought some machines in Italy, uh, I remember going to Italy trying to negotiate to buy a, mil- a machine It was $7 million, we didn't really have $7 million and we needed the uh, export finance, export credit from Italy and they wouldn't l- buy the machine unless we committed and I said we can't commit unless we've got the export credit. Export credit approved and we went round in circles in a classic Italian way and uh, they said sign this and you'll get the export credit. I'm going to be on the hook, so heart in her mouth, I signed, and the next day we got the export credit. But yeah, you know, amazing. So, but the focus, taking the risk, who knew whether it was going to work? Richard, uh, the deal we did was interesting in that he, we had signed uh, as part of the contract. It was interesting. This is the input, and there was an, an appendix, of, an extra, of, of the sort of paper that was going in and the quality of the paper coming out because no one knew so it was that it was innovation uh the printing quality on boxes today is absolutely 100 degrees 80 degrees from where it was back then so invest manage the risk work hard and uh, well if those who've read the book you know look after your best customers look after your best uh employees you know collect your debts invest invest in equipment over and above what's needed, but manage the risk. You've got, they're the lessons. And, and they're relevant, just as relevant for us, the startups that Rampersan dealing with today as they are for large industrial companies. And one of the reasons I think larger companies get uh, lose out and are disrupted in the is that they forget about managing risk and taking risk. They become very risk-averse. And one of the problems with the public company structures is there's not a lot of reward for getting it right, but my God, there's terrible punishment for getting it wrong. Why go to public companies?
0: Let's talk about the other equally as important components of your career. You co-founded a business known as Hindle Corporate in 1996 that had a focus on providing corporate advice to private companies. What were the, the origins of this business and what was the opportunity that you saw to launch your own firm alongside David Beatty?
1: When I left the Pratt Group full-time, uh, Anthony was growing I, and I had said to him, and I'd seen it when I first started, even though it was 10 years since Richard's father had died, there were still people at Visi who worked for Leon Pratt, his father, also his grandson now. But, uh, and, uh, and I said to Anthony, I'll always be available, ask me anything you like but get your own advice. So it was time, Anthony was coming, Richard was still uh, well at that stage but it was time for transition. So we agreed that I would spend half my time at Pratt and half doing other things. Uh, and I had no idea what the other things were but that was really underwriting uh, whatever I was going to do next and uh, people thought because the Pratt Group was successful and I'd worked with Richard therefore I could help uh, and I had the be- world's best marketing director because if anyone ever asked Richard for, about anything and would say just go and talk to Michael so that was incredible uh, and uh, a couple of boards that people asked me to sit on David Beatty was there we got on, it was one initially, and we got on. And Although different perspectives basically saw the world the same way, uh, different styles. And uh, at that stage, Arthur Anderson, as it was, was still strong. I've never really talked to David about this, but I, he clearly, in my view, sensed the coming implosion. Uh, we live not, not far from each other. We were just talking one day, and he said we should start up together. I said it's a good idea. Uh, didn't know what it meant, and our business plan comprised of saying to each other, "Listen, I don't want to do a lot of financial modelling. No, I don't want to write long documents or information memorandums. We better hire someone." So we did, and that was our business plan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was really the background. There was. It's fair to say probably a gap in the market in large private companies that weren't getting good quality advice. And that wasn't because people who talked to them weren't smart, but the advice from Macquarie Bank or UBS or Credit Suisse and so on is of a different nature, uh, different attitude to risk dealing with boards of directors, not proprietors. So there was a gap. Um, people came to us and the business developed. As I said, to say it was a well-planned, rigorously thought-out, great business plan would be uh, so far from the truth, I can't tell you, but it developed and all of a sudden one day we woke up and we had about 45
0: staff. It's an amazing story. And, and then the business was acquired by Credit Suisse in 2008. So how, how did it groan over that time?
1: The best thing that happened uh, was that... Um, one day a fellow called Paul Bassett came to see me. Uh, Paul had been a lawyer at Arnold Bloch Lieber and had, Paul had drafted Richard Pratt's initial will. I mean, you asked me way back in the questions about uh, bringing some order and system. There were no constituent documents. Richard didn't have a will. Uh, and Paul drafted the will. He then, he and his brother Andrew, had this idea about starting up Something to do with the internet or something, you yeah, know, who knew, hell knew what that was. And Irvin, the late Irvin Rockman had funded them uh, up to a point, and it was starting to get off the ground, but they needed to raise more money. And Paul said, Can you help me raise the couple of million dollars they needed? It's in 98, late 98. And uh, I said, Yes, I didn't really understand the question, but I said, Yes, and we did. N- was no venture capital market. I mean, I think compare it to today where people say it's underfunded. You know, I remember Irvin Rockman telling him about all his friends who were going to invest. I said, We told Irvin that, but we're not really going to put money into this. We no idea. Irvin's got no idea what he's doing. Uh, and uh, but we cobbled it together, raised the $2 million, a little bit later raised another 5 or 6 Um Irvin insisted we took half our fee in shares. I often used to tell him before he died that if he'd been a really decent fellow, he'd have insisted we took the lot. Yeah. Um, when you talk about success, I mean, when you, when you raised, we raised two million at a pre market valuation of five, a pre capital raised valuation of five. So, you know, it's obviously been watered down, but yeah, it's 25 or $28 today, it's like one cent. I mean, who knows what the returns are? It's silly enough to have sold some along the way, but uh, it's been you know, incredible. Uh, once we'd done that, people thought we could do it. So there was, and uh, Seek was incredibly successful. There's another company uh, which became known as Sinewave, which was pretty successful. And then there were some that you've probably dug out, but I'd prefer you didn't mention because they're just graves uh, in the cemetery. Um, but that developed enormously. Because of that, we became well known. Uh, so it wasn't only in, in the tech area. Uh, we did quite a number of uh, acquisitions, divestments, uh, strategic plans, capital raisings, uh, and the business grew. Uh, Credit Suisse, which is by its very nature a private bank, and even today you see it lurching from disaster to disaster in the investment banking area, is a very strong private banking offer. Uh, they had, had no been very strong in, in investment banking, John Wiley, Mike Fitzpatrick, you know, giants of the industry, but no private banking presence. So when they started, looked around to say, who can we acquire who has a, a insight, a, an entry into that market, they came to talk to us and we didn't know in 2007 or 2008 that the world was about to fall apart, but we didn't know we had, the, if you want, biblically, we'd had the seven fat years, the seven lean years were going to come at some stage, uh, we were both getting older, we weren't old, we're still not old, but David and I were both uh, I think David's a bit over 60, I was a bit under. Uh, so we said yes.
0: You then spent more than a decade with Credit Suisse in the role of executive director, retiring relatively recently in 2019. Reflecting on, on that period of your professional career, what was it like working at Credit Suisse and, and what, was, what did your role entail?
1: More or less marketing. You know, yeah. As uh, someone crudely put it, what they really bought was access to David Beatty's and my diaries. Uh, and contact lists. It was an interesting experience, back to the rigour, I've been through the private company route for 30 years I guess, uh, yeah 30 years uh, after I talked earlier about the rigour and I thought I still had it. When you get into it, the banking world so different, uh, so many rules, so many regulations, uh, compliance writ large as someone talked about, the business prevention department, the uh, all the the compliance people. Uh, we were fortunate, there's a wonderful man, Marcel Kreiss who was the a- in Singapore at the time, the head of the Asian Bank and he s- realised that what he bought were two people, uh, an organisation too, but two people who weren't going to live with the totally restrictive rules of the bank. And he basically said, you know, bring us the business, we'll worry about all the I-dotting and T-crossing. It's a great organization to this day I would not say anything bad about the private bank uh, at all uh, very very structured rigorous uh, approach when people and I had private banks call on me as you can imagine and they say you've got to buy gold or you've got to buy uh, emerging markets or something and they have no idea they don't know what I'd invested in they didn't know what my attitude to risk was they had no real basis for saying that I thought it was a good idea credit risk model which I was very impressed with this. You've got to work through what do you want, what do you need? Your needs are different to my needs, your age, your attitude to risk, the portfolio you've already got, and then we'll tailor the answer to meet your requirements. And it's a very good offering. Not everything goes right, but most do. Uh, And it's remarkable to me that where the private bank is so structured and rigorous that the other side of the bank has been uh, so, uh, unfortunate for want of a better word. Uh, it, so it was largely business development. I learnt that uh, I'm not really cut out for big banks. And while I was there, uh, part of the deal was I could stay on private company boards, which I uh, do to this day. So I had the advantage of not being totally limited by the Credit Suisse. And it's not just Credit Suisse. In fact, I remember someone saying to me that they wanted to d- open a bank uh, an account with, I think it was City, but it doesn't matter, it could have been UBS, Morgan Stanley. And opening account's impossible. I mean, it's just so much paperwork, so difficult. And that's the banking world today and in, in recent years, both in Australia and internationally, it's just got harder and, and likely to continue. So I realized that's not really uh, for me, but as part of a portfolio of things to do, it was good.
0: Let's now talk about your current business interests starting with Rampersand, the business you co-founded alongside your son Paul who you mentioned earlier in 2013 and which initially launched with a $6 million mandate. What was the the decision to launch a a venture capital business at this point in time?
1: Not just quibbling with the words a little bit Rob, I didn't really co-found it. Uh, Paul had lived in Silicon Valley. He negotiated a deal that he would come to Australia, live in Australia, he and his wife and there. One and a half children at the time were happy to come here, but he'd work there. So for some time he was working both virtually, as he could then, uh, by then, and, and a lot of travel back and forth. There was no venture capital market in Australia, uh, there was very little uh, development in the area. Uh, there had been some successes, we talked about Seek before and REA and so on, but uh, there, w- there was a very very limited market and Paul started to see some opportunities here and he asked me about being able to spend more time here and raising money uh, and I said I loved him dearly and I was happy to back him but I did know that uh, running uh, into this area and startup early stage you've got to have a portfolio approach uh, anyone I mean if you go back to the ones we talked about before would I have picked Seek above all the others as the one that would have succeeded? Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, the portfolio that would have compensated for all the bad ones. Need a portfolio. Uh, and the other thing I know is that when you're investing other people's money, you're much, much, much more rigorous than when you're dealing with you only with your own. So uh, he and Jim Cassidy, who he met, had a tech background, founded the company. My role was to bring some structure and governance. I still don't understand the technology. I, I think I know a lot more than I did, but I still know nothing. But I understand something about structuring, something about business. Uh, and I, we went to a number of people. Paul is a good salesman. I said to everybody, you're not allowed to put in more than $250,000. They're all people who, God forbid, they lost it. It wouldn't hurt them. They've got their money back a couple of times over shortly. Uh, one and a half at the moment, we're working on the next one. Uh, so it's worked out well. But so. That's why it was six million. We, we set five, Paul was so successful in, uh, in raising it. I was going to put in a million, I got cut back, unfortunately. Uh, and we raised six, uh, and it was against that background. Uh, the big question we were asked at the time, over and over and over, was, will there be enough opportunities? It's quite interesting, this is pre-Atlassian, pre-Canva, pre all those successes. Uh, and so they had, Jim and, and Paul in particular, had the vision. Uh-huh. People said there's non, no money available in Australia, there's plenty of money available in Australia. The story I often tell is you find me a third-rate uh, gold and uh, copper prospect, yeah, you can raise the money. But it wasn't uh, focused on the venture capital industry. Uh, that's changing, uh, has changed and is changing. Uh, so it was very early stage. There was a vision. If I go back to, uh, back to some of the lessons of the Group, rigor, focus, hard work, vision. Uh, managing the risk so the portfolio approach covers that Rob and uh, and that was the background to starting it and and my contribution was and is really at the at the governance structuring level Um, I I still shake my head sometimes on the technology I've really got no idea
0: now it was announced in November that the business was launching its fourth fund to the tune of some 40 million dollars so significant expansion on the original six million dollar mandate, how have you seen the business grown over time and, and have you seen the performance for investors?
1: Well it's the classic, it's a startup. Uh, it's now probably beyond a startup. Uh, the first fund's the only one that has returned money but everyone's got one and a half times their money back uh, and obviously uh, things have slowed. In terms of exits, you don't have to talk about the uncertainties in the market now although we are still working on some. Uh, the first fund uh, is one and a half times uh, money back, five investments left, likely. with all the caveats around likely that uh, you can possibly put in and all the disclaimers, please you know read the next five pages of and what I'm about to say isn't necessarily uh, correct, but uh, should be three, probably four times money back, which over say ten years is is a healthy return. Uh, the second fund hasn't returned money yet but is looking strong, so obviously a little less strong today, Uh, but it's given that there's no desperate need to sell most of these, the fund's not that old that we have to, we're under pressure, um, should do as well. What I've seen is a business that's developing, there's now nine people likely to add more. Um, One of the other great Richard Pratt sayings is that timing is not the most important thing. It's the only thing. And the timing of raising this fourth fund, not because we planned it, it is fortuitous. It's invested, it's, uh, raised uh, 40 million. We've invested around 10% of that, maybe a little more. So there's a lot of dry powder, to use one of Anthony Pratt's favorite expressions. And, and it should be a good time because valuations are coming down. Very founder-focused approach. Uh, by Paul and the team, so that it won't be a situation of screwing the founders because success comes from the founders. You don't make it by uh, screwing the founders too hard, but valuations are, uh, I suppose, the nice generic way of putting it is more realistic. So, probably a good time to have the money to invest. And despite the massive growth in the market, uh, most of the other big funds and the names you know are uh, focused on later stage than Rampersand, so it's not very competitive at the early stage market, there are some, but of the the, seed, the early stage funds, uh, the post-seed early stage, uh is probably the biggest and can lead some of those rounds. We like to invest with others, uh, and so that's a benefit of having uh, um, more funds, uh, but the business has gone from its own startup hope it will work, who knows, hard work, to sustainable, not where it needs to get to, but. No business ever gets to where it needs to get to. It's always growing, always got issues.
0: And what do you, Paul, and, and others in the business, and in the investment committee and that sort of thing, what do you look for before investing in a, in a particular business? What do you look for in the founders or the management team?
1: It, 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 obviously, it's, a, it's a, a platform, an idea, a concept that we think will work, that we think is scalable. Uh, but ultimately, it's always about the people. Anyone who thinks they can do it by themselves is uninvestable. Uh, Anyone who doesn't have the capacity to build a team, maintain a team. If you go back to all those lessons we talked about earlier, that's one of the fundamentals. do quite a lot of work. Yes, check the technology. Yes, check the market. Yes, check the competition, of course. Ultimately, you've got to back good people. Uh, And sometimes you can change the people. That's never the desired approach, uh, but uh, ultimately it's the combination of good ideas, good people, and basically a great team. The team will never be fully formed at the point of investment, but the concept and the thought that we will build a great team go back to SEEK. It's nothing today, or nothing then like it is today, but the basic concept and approach and the the approach that Paul and Andrew. Uh, to some extent Matt Rockman had was they were going to build this business and built means bringing in people and building a great team that's always the key to success.
0: Alongside Rampersand you're also a board member of ERDI group take us through this business if you could and and how you've seen the the uncertainty of the past two years for a for a business that operates in the hotel and hospitality industries.
1: Yeah, you know, as I've got older I, I've got not necessarily more religious but more observant in fact there's a very eminent rabbi told me once that he knows a lot of very observant people who he doesn't think are very religious and he knows some religious people who don't observe a great deal at all. But the reason for telling that story is what's happened at Erdy is a miracle. Uh, We uh, were faced as an accommodation industry, uh, business in essence, and you know what happened with COVID uh, and the uh, one Sydney property, there was one Brisbane property and uh, several in, in Victoria, Geelong, St Kilda, the city. Uh, and there was no business. Uh, we weren't by any means overgeared, but we had debt. Uh, and it's a huge, huge tribute to the management uh, that we won COVID contracts, we kept COVID contracts, uh, quarantine contracts during COVID, a better way of expressing it. Uh, unlike some of the uh, scandals and, and problems that arose at some facilities we didn't ever have any. It was very well managed uh, and as I say it was, we came out of it uh, in, well, are coming out of it because the jury is still out, the accommodation, the, the, the occupancy rates are still low but they're, they're building. Uh, but they're saying that actually Paul, my son Paul at Ramazan, we worked through with all the companies uh, at the time, all the portfolio companies, was survive to thrive. You've got to have enough money to survive, and we went through with all of them, that you've got to have enough money to survive for two years. Why two years? Well, because beyond that's ridiculous, and who knew what was going to happen? Uh, but during that time, you've got to work out what you're doing. There's no point coming to the end and saying, whew, we got out of that, now what do we do? Survive and work out how to thrive. Well, we did that at Erdi as well. You we applied those same lessons drove people mad, survived to thrive. Don't need to say it again, Michael. Well, you know, it's important. (laughs) Uh, We made sure we had enough money to get through uh, and worked out what we would do, how we'd manage post the quarantine uh, contracts, and we're coming out of it. Uh, That was a question of bringing all the schools together, all the same lessons, focus, uh, great tribute to the management that, they were able to focus on getting the contracts, running the contracts, as uh, unlike some of the others where there were huge problems. Uh, and now uh, th- there are different challenges. Uh, we have got capacity to expand modernise the hotels. All the hotels were somewhat uh, in need of capital uh, expenditure. We've spent some, we've got more to spend. And it's a co- always a combination of entrepreneurial flair and rigor. People saw the Pratt Group, massive expansion. We ran model after model after model and Richard and Anthony to this day just announced another, how I many how big expansion is in Kentucky I think. I know, I'm not close to it anymore but I'm sure there's model after model, so the ideas and we're doing the same thing at the Erty Group. Uh, and working through it and learning, uh, taking it from what was a, an entrepreneur's uh, vision of Les, uh, the late Les Erty, and building the structure around it and the rigour.
0: One final one to finish, what have been your proudest achievements to date and what's still left to achieve?
1: Well the proudest achievements are that despite everything after 50 odd years I'm still married I have uh, three amazing children, tribute to their mother I guess, all successful in their own rights, fam- married families. Uh, realistically that, that's the greatest joy. we. Just spent, well, my wife and I took our two eldest uh, grandchildren, both boys, three months apart. Uh, Paul's son, who we've talked about, and I mentioned his brother, the lawyer who lived in Hong Kong for many years. He and his wife had their three children born in Hong Kong, they're back here now. We went to Israel with the two of them. They had their bar mitzvahs during the COVID period, so we were going to take them individually. We took them together, and it was just the most marvellous two and a half weeks. Uh, It was our greatest joy. And I often say to people, uh, and I you know, quoted recently, uh, as you mentioned to me earlier in the financial review uh, on succession, it's better to have more money than less. Of course it's better to have more money than less. But ultimately it's what you can do with it. It's not a scorecard, yes, do you want more? Yeah, is it better to be richer? It's much better to have your family around you to use the money for the success. So uh, I know it sounds probably toy, but Realistically, the greatest joy is that our family, uh, together, successful. Do we argue? Of course we argue. We uh, but uh, I think uh, that that's probably the, the first thing that comes above all. Uh, I'm incredibly blessed to have made far more money than I ever expected. Not nearly as much as many others, but but it's fine. Yeah, I'm obviously proud of what happened at the Pratt Group at... Uh, As you said, when I went there, turnover was about ten million dollars, profit of sub one. The numbers aren't public or talked about, but it's so many multiples of that, and uh, I don't think it's immodest to say I played a a part in that. Uh, The startup of Rampersand, starting of Hindle and selling it. I think it's that early stage. There was a um, communal involvements, um, Jewish National Fund. I was president for many years, and if you regenerate with others of course because no one ever does it by themselves but regenerate from an organisation where I mean, when I first was involved there at 40 I was the youngest person in the room by 30 years to the fact that uh, it's now thriving a group of friends and I have started a Jewish communal centre the Ark centre and this probably an ad for the Ark centre please contribute please come if you're interested we welcome everyone uh, in East Hawthorne near where we live uh, those startups they're, they're, they're the achievements uh, truly a blessed career you know it's uh, the uh, the fortunate thing uh, that if you're really lucky is you, you're born in the right time, the right place and the right parents. I certainly was. Yes, I've been lucky enough to take advantage of it but uh, that w- that was the great background and I'm pleased with what we've achieved with it.
0: Michael, terrific note to end on. Thanks so much for your time and well done on an extraordinary career. Thank you.